0: Oh, Recorded live. Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed.
1: The rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, January 27th, 2012. This week, episode 233. Comes to you from Studio C in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Back with me in the studio this week is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. It's
2: good to be here, Joe.
1: All right, Cliff, great to have you. And uh, we are having technical problems with our internet connection now. And what else could we have? Uh, today's segments include the IAQ Radio trivia question, an interview with Brad Prezant of... Uh, Actually, he's out at Massey University now in New Zealand, and also an assistant uh, professor at the University of Washington, a well known gentleman in the indoor air quality world. We are also going to have, of course, our halftime, and then hopefully we'll bring on Dr. Wow for the roundup. But before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors.
2: Our newest marquee sponsor is Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing for the restoration industry. For fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing, learn more at www.netclaimsnow.com.
1: Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com.
2: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndonn.com. Dot com
1: clean facts and cleaning and maintenance management magazine your source for cleaning and maintenance news visit them at clean with dot an com and cmmonline.com please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of iaq radio whenever you inquire about their services or products okay let's move on let's see if we've got brad prez on the line brad do we have you we do oh unbelievable I didn't wow. think, I thought I'd get uh empty emptiness out there Brad. thank you so much for your patience this week it's been a mess but uh we're gonna work on it let me uh introduce you a little bit to our listeners
2: dreams, and just try to remember Life isn't always as it seems but I got you uh-oh. I got you rolled down in my little green book. That's where I keep you.
1: Brad Prezaunt is an uh, a research scientist at Massey University in New Zealand and an assistant associate professor at the University of Washington. He founded and served as president of Prezant Associates in the Pacific Northwest and was also a senior industrial hygienist at the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health, School of Public Health and Community Medicine at the University of Washington. He was a co-editor of the publication from the American Industrial Hygiene Association, Recognition, Evaluation, and Control of Indoor Mold, also known as the Green Book, and is a widely respected authority on indoor air quality issues. Joining us live from New Zealand, too, as I understand it, and we appreciate you uh, getting up in the middle of the night to join us. Hello, Brad.
0: Hello, and thank you for the invitation to join you.
1: Well, we appreciate you joining us. What, What took you to New Zealand? My wife. Uh, that's, that's a pretty simple answer. <laughs> is she from the area? Everything else followed from that. I understand. Is is she from New Zealand then?
0: Well, that's that's kind of what I was wondering too. Though no, the answer was she uh, surfed the web and decided that it might be a really delightful place to live, and uh, we packed up, visited, and then moved here in early
1: two thousand and nine. Wow! And are you still? very active in consulting or uh, research areas?
0: In research, yes, and in consulting much less so. Um, I've kind of gone back to my roots doing research and working at a university base. Um, I do do some research on indoor air quality, but really most of it now is uh, focused on occupational health and exposures in the workplace.
1: I see. And do you get back to the States much?
0: Often, but not often enough. It's, it's an awfully long trip from here to Seattle. It's about uh, at least 24 hours wow. door to door.
1: You know, when I knew you were coming on the show, I, I did a quick uh, map quest and pulled up New Zealand. And uh, I think you're, I guess, are you in summer now?
0: We are at the height of summer. Okay. And uh, I expect hopefully to be swimming a little later today in, in front of my house in the ocean.
1: It didn't look that warm when I was online, but I thought, well, maybe it's just a bad day or maybe it was at night. I don't know. It looked like it was in the mid-40s or 50s. Is that pretty common? Uh,
0: maybe, maybe at night on a cool night, but usually it's in the 60s at night and in the 70s during the day. Okay. We're, we're hoping for some really good weather this coming month.
1: Well, we do, again, appreciate you coming in late at night. What time of night is it in New Zealand?
0: Well it's not it's not that bad. It's six AM. Oh. I've been working in Australia, so I'm about two hours off. So it's probably about four AM in my biological clock. <laughs> but um it's it's nice and light and the birds are tweeting, so
1: Great. Now Healthy Buildings is the um International Society for Indoor Air Quality and Climate. I I, I was at Indoor Air two thousand eleven. I guess Healthy Buildings is one of the two conferences they do, Um, that will be in Australia in 2012, as I understand it. Are you doing anything with them for that conference?
0: I am. I'm a member of that organizing committee, uh, and I will be attending the conference. It's the first time, and I think as long as I can remember, if if maybe the first time completely, that it's been down in Australia. So for those of you who are... uh, who would consider coming to that conference, there will be some speakers there who otherwise wouldn't be attending uh, either healthy buildings or indoor air because they're Australia-based. So it might be a good opportunity to get a little exposure to the way some of the folks think about these issues down here. How much different
1: is it down under with respect to indoor air quality issues and, and, I guess, awareness of indoor air quality issues? Do you find a great difference?
0: Uh, I don't think so. I think some of the same issues and problems come up, um, certainly with the built environment. Uh, you know, the housing may be better or worse, but there there are issues with exposure in the home. Uh, same types of issues come up in the workplace. So actually on a, an experience basis, there's not a lot different about how people deal with the issues.
1: And what type of construction, I'm, I'm thinking New Zealand in particular, you, I don't know, I just got the impression maybe it would be a lot of uh, concrete and, and cinder block and and tile and things of that nature, because it, it is an island, but on the other hand, it's a huge island, so I'm not sure. What Can you comment on the types of construction you see?
0: Well, it's a bit maritime, the climate, which means that the extremes are somewhat limited in terms of cold and heat. And uh, it's almost like uh, being in Georgia or even south of that area uh, because of uh, the relative um, warmer temperatures that occur in the wintertime. But as a result of that, houses are not insulated and they're generally poorly constructed. They do generally tend to be wood-framed. And as a result of, of that, there's quite a bit of issues with infiltration. Uh, insulation is not common, interestingly, and uh, there's quite a bit of problems with moisture and mold. In fact, New Zealand has some of the highest rates of asthma in, in the developed world. And one possible contributor to that is just the poor quality of the housing and the prevalence of moisture intrusion.
1: Do they have basements, crawl spaces, slab construction, or all of the above, like here in the States? <laughs>
0: uh, they generally have uh, wood frame pier or slab construction, uh, fewer basements in uh, residential homes, um, and then uh, a lot of issues with condensation, because Central heating, believe it or not, is not common. Uh, Even in million-dollar homes, you might have uh, a a north-facing. Of course, being in the southern hemisphere, north-facing is ideal for capturing the heat of the sun. Uh, So you might have a north-facing glass, but people literally plan the house for you to have small electric space heaters that you would turn on or off in each room if you needed supplemental heat, because the sun didn't shine and it didn't warm up that day. It's a bit of an adjustment when you come from America or even Western Europe or anywhere to come here and find that uh, central heating is not that common.
1: And going back for a moment to Healthy Buildings 2012, what What presentation or maybe track uh, do you think is is one that you are kind of anticipating and looking forward to the most?
0: Well, you know, that conference, because there's so many attendees and so many papers presented, uh, has just about anything and everything you could imagine covered in terms of topics. Um, One of the focuses this this, uh, time is going to be on green buildings. And I think that might be a quite an interesting one, uh, of, of the topics presented. But the, the topics are pretty diverse. Uh you could pretty much anything you're interested in find a series of papers and workshops on that area.
2: You know, when when you were at the University of Washington, was there some accomplishment that uh you found most
0: rewarding? Well, I think uh, for me, one of the things that I learned early in my career since I was there, uh, well, up until uh, late 80s, um, was the integration of both air quality and ergonomics. And at the time, both of those issues were somewhat emerging. And uh, what I realized was that In fact, when you looked at an environment, there was an interaction of these things. And looking with just one set of glasses was not really enough to fully understand the problems. And that if you looked from a more holistic perspective, considering all of the factors that influenced the individual, that it made a lot more sense and you could be more effective in intervening.
1: You know, I wonder if you could... I'm thinking back, Cliff, I don't think we've ever really, and we've been doing this for five years now, I don't think we've ever really had much of a discussion on ergonomics. And, and that's that's an interesting statement you made that there's, you know, you have to look at this holistically. Can you give our listeners a little bit of a, maybe a, an example of an ergonomics issue that maybe exacerbates the, the other issues within the building or just a common ergonomics issue that makes people unhappy uh, with their work environment?
0: Well, in, in the 80s, if you recall, um, as indoor air quality became more of, a, of an entity, uh, some of the first areas that were addressed were in the office and so-called sick building syndrome, um, although that term is typically not used now. But uh, in many cases, you had people who were doing office work. The work itself had a psychological component that probably interacted with health in terms of it being tedious or repetitive, maybe low-control. And in addition to that, they may have been in a building where the ventilation system was not optimal, perhaps there was moisture issues. um, And all of those things probably impact on the individual, and then based on how well they cope with those situations, lead them to a point where they may be complaining uh... some some people might complain about the air quality some people might complain about the workstation uh, sometimes uh, although it seems obvious maybe to us when we go and evaluate that work environment uh... there may be issues that are not obvious to those people so they don't complain about the relationship between their feet and the floor or uh... their uh, neck leaning over because the distance to the to the screen on their computer is too great so they just simply complain. Uh, they're uncomfortable. You know, their body doesn't feel good. They're getting sick. So sometimes those types of problems would manifest themselves as air quality complaints when, in fact, part of the contributor or a major part of the contributor might have been the workstation design or vice versa.
2: But, yeah. Um, doctor, what about... Um fluorescent lighting. I know that it's a problem in, in workplaces. Um, can you comment on that? Would that be considered ergonomic?
0: Well, uh, <laughs> I guess you could consider it from that perspective. Um, I think environmental in any case. Uh, and. Uh, The issues with fluorescent lighting, it is possible based upon how all of the circuits have wired that all of the lights could be blinking on and off at the same time at 60 hertz. Uh, And there are people who can become sensitized or are sensitive to that type of a situation. I think that's different from what many people complain about with fluorescent lighting, which is that they just don't like the color spectrum. And I know from uh, looking at those types of environments that the color spectrum is really a function of more than just what the fluorescent light is emitting. So it has a lot to do with the color of the paint on the walls and uh, what the light is reflecting off of and what types of uh, uh, container, in essence, the light is in that it's shining through because all of that's going to change that color balance so I've never uh, been that involved with with that aspect of lighting. Usually when it comes to any type of a work environment, an office environment, the issue is mostly the intensity of the lighting, glare, that sort of thing, whether it's compatible with the activities being done, reading or using a screen. Um, and then the, there have been uh, lots of allegations of, the spectrum of lighting affecting people's performance, but that's not something I personally
1: have been involved with. Okay. I, yeah, I was hoping because Val and I yesterday, Val's our engineer here, she helps me at the office as well, she's the office manager, we're looking at buying a new uh, computer monitor and trying to figure out, okay, is the LCD, LED, uh, or just the, uh, you know, the, old, the old school type, what's the best type for, for the eyes, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or if that's something outside of your realm.
0: Well, once once we got away from the whole idea of uh, video display terminals as modified TV screens where an electron beam runs across a phosphor screen, I think uh, whether they be LCD or LEDs or whatever, I think that's made an enormous improvement um, in the resolution and also the flickering factor. So generally, at least... From what I've seen, many of those uh, visual issues have been resolved on the display level, and that still leaves a lot of the other issues in terms of you know the physical arrangement of the workplace. But at least with the size of monitors increasing, the resolution increasing, and the, the technology changing to get away from that flicker that you got with a um, with an electron beam, that things have improved a lot in the last 20 years.
1: Let's go back a little bit uh, to your your time in, in starting a business in the Northwest and, and running a, a consulting a successful consulting business. I, and I I think I read somewhere that you had sold that business. Is that accurate? In two thousand
0: and six, I sold the business and lived in Europe for a while. And uh, and was happy about that that was a 20-year period i enjoyed every minute of it but i thought it was time to maybe move on
1: we we have a lot of business owners uh, consulting type indoor environmental quality but we also have disaster restoration business owners we have uh, an audience of facility managers etc but i'm wondering if uh, you could maybe give a tip for business owners in general, or if you want to get specific on consulting or indoor air quality consulting, you know, what what was one of the things you learned that might help them along the way?
0: Well, one of the uh, difficulties in doing a business is starting it up and getting it running. But I found that uh, once you've gotten past that point, that it was really very satisfying. Obviously, you have a lot more control over how the business operates than you would otherwise. You may not have much control over your own hours or schedule. Um, and, of course, the business does tend to drive, in many cases, uh, some of the things you do. But, but you have an opportunity to shape the company, and you're setting the policies and the direction, uh, the style, the culture. So you can make a contribution in that way that you may not always have the ability to do when you're not running the show, so to speak.
1: So would you, I guess, suggest they just keep that in mind and, and enjoy that opportunity?
0: I think so. I think um, for me, it was uh, a great opportunity to start and run a business. I think it's a it's a unique opportunity, and uh, I could I could surely assure everyone that you you do find all sorts of unexpected things happening and uh, hopefully they're mostly on the good side. But, you know, in my experience, a lot of good things happened. Um, a lot of people uh, came through the company, worked for the company, and then went on to, to career somewhere else and have uh, a good, good experience that they brought with them. So I think that it's a, it's a great opportunity, and you meet, obviously, a lot of people in the process. And uh, learn about things other than the technical aspects of the work, whether it be finance or human resources or strategic planning or whatever.
2: Um, let's talk a little bit about what you learned doing consulting work following Hurricane Katrina. Uh, anything stand out in your mind?
0: Most of the work. Um, that we did following Katrina um, was not of a very technical nature. Um, Prezant, the company that I had founded at the time, had a contract for one of the engineering firms working for FEMA. So some of the people that we were providing were doing tasks that were almost unrelated to indoor air quality. For example, uh, we were handing out trailers and that sort of thing. So our direct experience, in terms of evaluating homes, for example, for moisture or mold, was somewhat limited, in that most of the work was was of a slightly different nature.
1: And I, but I assume you've also have kept up with and kept a close eye on the the types of research and the types of of. Uh... Papers that have come out, like the uh, CDC had a paper, etc., that came out after that. I mean, can you kind of summarize for listeners what you think we learned in general from that?
0: Well, I think clearly we saw that um, the moisture that resulted, you know, following the envelope degradation and and or flooding or whatever, um, clearly did impact people's health and. And of course, in a, in the context of Katrina, there was a lot more than just their housing being screwed up. Their communities were screwed up, and uh, the studies that have looked at health impacts have have seen that there have been you know quite a few undesirable health impacts of that. We we've done some work here in New Zealand as well, um, looking at housing and moisture and uh, and the effects of. Of that on people's lives, what's, in particular on their respiratory health. What's the
1: awareness like in New Zealand of, of these issues? Is it, you know, are people aware that it's a potential issue, and or do they kind of, you know, poo poo it, say, hey, you know, it's not a big deal?
0: Well, we have, um, like the U.S., like Canada, uh, a problem with construction here. Uh, it's called the leaky home problem. And, of course, the insurance situation, the liability situation, you know, even the emphasis on litigation is different in this country than it is in, in the U.S. Uh, but there's, there is a very large number of homes that were constructed here uh, in the last 10 to 20 years that were not constructed properly. The envelopes were not constructed properly, and they leak. And you've got a uh, ongoing moisture issue in the home as a result of that. And that coupled with the condensation issues that occur here, condensation being driven by the fact that the perimeters of the building are very cold, and if you don't have central heating, you're not warming those outside walls, and as soon as any moisture is created in the building, when it hits the outside wall, it condenses, and, uh, and it turns into liquid moisture. So that's, that's a lot of what drives the problems here. But that, combined with the leaky building thing, um, has definitely increased awareness about the problem. Uh, Unfortunately, because there's really not as much litigation here, people look towards the government to help finance solutions, and the government is pretty limited. In fact, the issue has somewhat come off the table since the Christchurch earthquake, because the rebuild is going to take so many government resources. The rebuilding of Christchurch over the next ten years that uh, we haven't heard a whole lot about the leaky building problem It's taken second or third place behind the earthquake rebuild.
2: Interesting. Cliff? Yeah, in, in terms of the differences with litigation, I guess first of all, what about the psyche? You know, in, in the United States it seems that people who feel victimized by indoor air quality are always looking to blame somebody. It's the contractor, it's the home builder it's the building owner. It's the building manager. It's the boss, and you know, it's 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 everyone but them. Uh, I just wondered whether there's a difference in the psyche in New Zealand as compared to in the United States.
0: Well, there's not a lot of recovery options in that regard. Um, Obviously, people do have insurance and that sort of thing, homeowner's insurance, and that, that operates relatively similarly than it would in the U.S. Uh, but uh, while you can sue somebody here, it's just a lot less common. And uh, if, in fact, you are successful and you prove that someone is responsible for some damages you've occurred, then it operates, the system operates similar to the United States where you can gain some, some relief, financial relief, and usually the the at fault party pays a lot of the court costs. Uh, but it, just because of the fact that that's so much less common, most people simply accept and live with whatever the situation is. So there's less of a of a blaming approach. Um, being an island in the middle of nowhere uh, that historically was tied to England, you know, people had to learn to make do with what they had because there wasn't much alternative. So Kiwis tend to be somewhat ingenious, and they tend to look to find solutions for problems, and they tend to be generally successful at that. You know, so that's more of the psyche here.
2: And I, I think the law, too, is, is you know, I think you mentioned or, or commented about it but didn't exactly say what it was. To the best of my knowledge uh, and understanding, uh there is a loser-pays legal system, so you better have a good case, and you better win. If not, you're going to pay uh, the, the, the the court costs. So I think better cases are the ones that are actually going to go into the system, and there's probably a lot less frivolous litigation. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I
0: would agree. I think that's probably probably the case. And, you know, the other aspect of that, too, is that uh, a lot of things are driven by the fear of litigation in America. Uh, building owners are anxious to make sure that their building is in good shape because they have a third-party relationship with the tenants. They're not their employees, typically. They're maybe somebody else's employees. So that, that opens them up to tort types of uh, litigation directed at them and those types of things are exempt say from workers comp and other systems that minimize liability so the fear of litigation uh, is an important driver i think in addressing problems in america and in a a sense that's much less present here And, and i think that's a very good thing because people realize that that if they don't do things properly, or if they have an obligation and they're not fulfilling it, that they could be held responsible in a way that might be very financially onerous. So, so I think that has a lot of positive impact, and and I think it drives a lot of a lot of work that's done, both of a preventive nature uh, as well, where you know building owners are anxious to make sure that that they don't open themselves up to that type of of risk. So it's kind of a risk management perspective that contributes to a lot of healthy work being done
1: and do we still have oh we lost you okay well hopefully brad prezant will call back in but his timing was actually perfect because we're ready for halftime so we hope to uh, get him back on the line in a moment for those of you just joining us we are coming up to our halftime we got a little late start today Our guest today is Brad Prezant uh, from Massey University in New Zealand, formerly with the University of Washington and Prezant Associates in the Northwest, also the co-editor of the Green Book. The second half of the show, we hope to get into a lot more detail on the Green Book. Now, before we get to there, though, let's stop and thank our sponsors. Thanks to our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com.
2: The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org.
1: And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them
2: at wolfsense.com legends environmental insurance services the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years learn about them at legends hyphen enviro.com and of course our marquee sponsors
1: net claims now providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry for fire water mold and reconstruction billing learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com.
2: Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com.
1: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com.
2: Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, dot com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, let's go
1: to, uh, we're changing things around a little bit today. We're going to the IAQ Radio trivia question.
2: win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, text your answer. Congratulations. <laughs> to John Lapotier, Microshield Environmental Services, Winter Springs, Florida, for pro- providing Shank versus US as the 1919 court case that set the precedent that freedom of speech is not absolute and that speech with a tendency to cause evil may be curbed by the government. The IQ Radio Trivia question for Friday, January 27th, 2012 has been sponsored by Triska the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Now for this week's trivia question. What was the given name of the Nepalese Sherpa, who along with New Zealander Sir Edmund Percival Hillary, Became the first climbers confirmed as having reached the summit of Mount Everest in 1953. All right, let's uh, let's get Dr. Wow on the line here. Dieter. Hello.
1: Hello, Dieter. Good day to you. Oops. <laughs> oh.
0: Yes, good, we, we uh, good you, morning, Brad. Caught uh, you
1: mid-cough. We do have Brad back, hi, by the way. Hi, apparently just... I got
0: disconnected
1: here. Okay. Great. Well, uh, welcome back. Can you hear me now? You, you we, can do, hear me. we can hear you, too. We've got, uh, Brad, we've got Dr. Dietrich Wow on the line. He's our technical director. We didn't see you back yet, so we pulled him in real quick. Peter, did you have anything you'd like to add real quick, and then we'll go back to the interview?
3: Oh, sure. There are a couple of things. A hey, uh, for things to do, uh, New Zealand and Australia uh, are on uh, on my agenda on things to do.
1: your bucket list. <laughs>
3: even though my Maori is getting a little bit uh, rusty, but uh, I think a couple of interesting things, and I think I have answers for you. On ergonomics, a good friend of mine, uh, we studied together at University of Pittsburgh a long time ago, Tom Bernard is now a professor in Florida. I think University of South Florida. I may be wrong, but it is in Florida. In fact, I was in his house many years ago. (coughs) Uh, Tom Bernard does ergonomics, and maybe that is a topic that we should look into, which has been... Yeah, it's the first time I heard it today, which is great. So there is a possibility to get maybe Tom on there.
1: Great idea. The next
3: is lighting, and I like that, too. And we have a gang of, we have a company here in Pittsburgh. And, Joe, you knew know them also. They were up in uh, Westford at the summer camp, and they gave a talk on lighting. That was the first time that I saw. This is like four or five years ago. That was the first time uh, that I saw that LEDs would be used for something else than little blinkers on a computer. Yep, yep. And it is amazing what these guys can do with different colors and so on, which are nicer for people than, yeah, just the blue stuff or uh, something like that. So uh, that is all I have to say right now. Okay. Um, I remember New Zealand from a crazy name. I mean, Christchurch. It's a crazy name for a city, isn't it? Oh, that's I the city.
1: Uh, um, you know, that, that had me confused, Brad. That's actually the city, not a place within the city.
0: Maybe it is. That's correct, yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, there's
0: a Christchurch in England, too. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's the probably the second major city in New Zealand, Christchurch.
1: Yeah. You know, I... Um I remember the you know the the news and the fact that there was a big earthquake there, and when you mentioned Christ Church, I was thinking, well, it was bigger than that, wasn't it? I thought maybe that was just one you know one location or one building there, but uh now it's making sense to me. Thank you Dieter, as always
3: yeah, no no problem, and another thing in which I am very much interested is sailing and these damn kiwis are incredibly good at.
0: They will carry a 4
3: million. It's oh, amazing man, what it's they're unbelievable and I like that. That's, we'll, that's great. We'll bring you back anyway, to the roundup. Anyway, we'll go back to the other topics and uh, if you want me back I will be here.
1: Great. We'll bring <laughs> you back to the roundup dear. Thanks. Okay, we've got Brad Prisant back on the line here. Brad, before I get any further, there was one question I wanted to ask. I've done some research, you know, obviously getting ready for the show, but we didn't get to touch base much. You were you were uh, traveling, and I wanted to ask, I, I know you've got a Master's of Science in Public Health, and that's the MSPH, and you're a certified industrial hygienist. I didn't know what a CPE is. What's that CPE certification?
0: That's the Ergonomics. That's the Certified Professional Ergonomist.
1: Ah, okay, okay. And who's that through? Is there What association would that be?
0: Uh, That's the uh, Association BCPE for the Certification of Professional Ergonomist, the Board for Certification
1: of Professional Ergonomist. I got it. Okay, great. All right. I I saw that one, and I hadn't seen it before. And like Dieter said, we've got to do a little more on uh, ergonomics and how that can interact with the indoor air quality. But one of the main things that you're known for here in the States and and in the indoor air quality world was being a co-editor along with Don Weeks and and Dr. J. David Miller on the AIHA Recognition Evaluation and Control of Indoor Mold, also known as the Green Book. And we've had both Don and Dr. Miller on. We finally got you on. So I'd like to get first maybe your thoughts on on how that publication has gone over the past, what is it, almost three years now?
0: Yeah, it's it's been a while. And of course, it took a couple of years for it to gear up. So basically uh... every say ten years or so uh, there's been a sentinel publication that has come out <clears throat> uh... addressing the issues of standard of care in terms of managing uh... mold issues in buildings uh... and that goes back to say some of the early new york city guidelines uh, at the time i think they were new york city guidelines on stachybotrys that began to define a way that we were all as consultants approaching the issues, what was important, what we were learning from the research that was being done. Uh, The restoration and cleaning industries, of course, have contributed to that. So we've all been learning and working together and defining a standard of care in terms of managing that. So AIHA came out with the Green Book a few years ago. Prior to that, the ACGIH uh, had been uh, publishing the BioAerosols Handbook And there have been other documents by both organizations that have uh, come along during the course of this period of time. I'm hoping that sometime in the next five, six years, there will be another effort um, to do exactly the same thing and incorporate everything that's developed over the last ten years and condense it into one place so that not just um, the people who are writing these books have the ability to consult them, but... As with the Green Book, you know, the most interesting part of that process was gaining access to an audience of perhaps non-members of those organizations who would look in that book and use it as a resource and use it as an opportunity to increase the professionalism that they were offering in terms of their services.
1: I agreed, and then I guess my first question for you would be, You mentioned two important documents, the New York City guidelines back in like 93, 94, and then the ACGIH bioaerosols assessment control uh, book in 1999, I want to say. And then it was 2008, the Green Book came out, and it focused on mold. And I'm curious, was that, were you part of that decision? Was that, I assume there was a conscious decision to focus on mold and, not necessarily to take to take the same approach as the bioaerosols book, which went into, you know, bacteria, mold, and um, other things that are related to damp environments as well, plus some uh, pollens and other allergy causing or allergy uh, causing, I guess, um, types of uh, exposures.
0: Well, you know, even just the topic of mold is very broad, and we were looking at uh, well. Uh, recognition evaluation and control so it was complex enough and there were well over uh, 50 authors involved uh, six or eight section chairs Uh, so it was it was a complex enough project to organize and write that book in the way that it was written because uh, when I began that project um, it would have been easier basically to just write it myself or write it with a couple of other people but the whole idea was that it would be a publication that was based on a range of opinions. Um, We were hoping that it would less try and advocate a particular perspective than allow the range of perspectives to shine through in terms of how people practice. Uh, In the same manner, uh, we were quite interested in there being bounds on that in the sense that uh, plenty of people in the years prior to its publication were maybe practicing uh, the assessment of moldy environments or moist, damp environments in a way that was not consistent with the best scientific practice. So the idea was to say, okay, given what we know about these situations, um, what would be the best or the range of ways to manage those types of problems, allowing for uh, the fact that qualified individuals differed on some levels in how to approach them but that most people had reached a reasonable consensus in terms of how these things are managed. So that was kind of the goal of the publication, was to present that range, but also to make it clear that that within this range, diversity was encouraged and, and inevitable, but there was bounds to the, that range as well. And if you wanted to be a professional practicing in the field, it would be great if you were within that band uh, as opposed to be lying outside of that band, so to
1: speak. That's I like that. That's the first time I've heard it kind of explained that way, and I like that. We're going to uh, be sure to emphasize that in the future. But uh, beyond that, we went into, and I, I started to look through and get some idea of which particular chapters you were most involved with and, and were, I guess, co-author on. And one was the underlying principles and background for evaluation and control, which... Uh, you know, talks about the basic premise of dampness and biological growth, the buildings and ecosystem, et cetera. But you went into a little bit on on dampness and health as well. And, you know, I'm curious about what, what your thoughts are. You mentioned earlier that there were respiratory issues that have been clearly uh, related to living in damp buildings and, and moldy conditions. I'm curious what your thoughts are on other potential health issues that, maybe at this point we don't have very strong evidence on, but do you have suspicions that there's more to it than respiratory issues?
0: Well, I think the majority of the issues are respiratory, as they see here, respiratory, as we would say. I'm starting to get used to being down here.
1: Okay. I've heard (laughs) it both ways. That'll work.
0: I think the important thing to recognize is that uh, those types of effects are both of an allergic nature and a non-allergic nature, just like asthma. You know, there's such a thing as allergic asthma and non-allergic asthma. Uh, Obviously, all of the health effects issues are very, very complex because ultimately we we don't really understand uh, the full range of how people react to moisture, or even exactly what it is about a damp environment that's causing these problems. So sometimes we jump to, from, the, from the assumption, you know, we make the assumption that, that uh, the problems of a damp environment are, are being caused by mold. But the data don't really support that conclusion totally, and the problem appears to be far more complex than that. And it may be that there's other factors involved that cause you know some type of an adverse health reaction. It may not be the mold per se. The mold may just be a marker of the dampness, and therefore the mold is always present when people are having the problems. But until those specific mechanisms are worked out, and actually one of the most interesting things that has happened in the last five plus years is that some of those mechanisms are starting to be looked at and they're finding that, yes, there are interactions between the various chemical agents in spores or fragments of, of, of mold, uh, because a lot of the, the exposure is not necessarily the whole intact spores. It's to chunks of, of the mycelia or fragments of spores. And, and those are probably much more numerous than the actual whole intact spores. But as all of that stuff starts being worked out and we see the mechanism for it, then I think we'll understand what's going on a lot more clearly. Right now, though, it does appear that the majority of the problems are uh, of a respiratory nature and that people are somehow experiencing these exposures in their lungs or upper uh, respiratory system and that those are leading to various types of health effects, the most common of which are, pretty
1: common things like cough or something, you know? Uh, you know, you, you bring up an interesting topic in, in with respect to the fragments, and, and that's something we have talked about from time to time here on the show. Uh, there's been different opinions on that, but I think the, the the consensus is swaying towards the fact that these fragments are more numerous than we thought and that they are uh, a potential issue for people. My my big question has always been and continues to be and I'll I'll ask you but I'll you know if you don't have anything to add to it I understand. And I just want to try and make everybody aware of this. I deal with people who perform water damage restoration or mold remediation on a daily basis. I help train these people and I really have a hard time finding any good data with respect to what their exposures are or what the potential health issues are of doing this type of work on a daily basis. Is there anything you can add to our understanding of that issue?
0: Well, I think you correctly point out that those folks are going to have the exposures because it's work-related that kind of cut across, in some cases, an entire working lifetime, you know, maybe 40 years of exposure, whereas somebody who has a problem in a house, the Maybe much more time limited, uh, and of course the people doing the restoration or remediation are are mechanically agitating this stuff in order to to uh, clean it up. So that exposure is going to be greater. Um, generally, in the workplace, we have good programs, health and safety programs. And people are using some type of appropriate protection, you know, whether it be respiratory protection, that sort of thing. Um, and hopefully, with increased awareness, and if people are looking at the uh, guidance documents like the Green Book, um, those folks are taking appropriate precautions to minimize or eliminate their exposures. And of course, we know that's not always the case, um, but hopefully, with the resources that exist out there, the message has gotten across clearly that. You know if you're uh, cleaning up moldy building materials, uh, you need to be protected you know you're going to be smashing and demolishing those materials you're going to be creating massive aerosols of of uh, mold spores and the like and you really have to be be
1: protected I just I'm trying to encourage people to please give me some more research in that area because these guys don't they don't get that type of research. I understand we, we do have to protect them, but uh, it really helps if we have something we can point to and say, look, this is the potential issue you're dealing with here. And, you know, I've looked at things like uh, farm workers' uh, lung and, and you know, things of that nature, which I guess you could point out, but it's really tough. Uh, I've got a couple of things in New York City guidelines we can look at, etc. but I'd love to see more on that. Anyway, I also have another chap- portion of that first chapter that I – I would love to ask you a quick question on, and that is the case reports and clusters of idiopathic pulmonary hemorrhage. I hope I've got that all pronounced properly. But, um, you know, this is the first publication where I saw a really good overall summary of what exists with respect to information on that issue. And I was just wondering if you had anything uh, that you could add from maybe a background standpoint uh, on that particular issue.
0: Well, I think um, what you're talking about is the clusters of uh, infant deaths that were noted uh, in Cleveland and in other places, Um, and uh, the CDC began some investigation of those. Uh, There was an initial report There was criticism of that report. The report was retracted. Basically, what the issue revolves around was uh, what often happens in epidemiology where there's an association uh, between some type of an exposure and a health outcome, and uh, that doesn't necessarily imply causation. So what happened in Cleveland was that there were a number of cases of what you refer to as IPH, or idiopathic pulmonary hemorrhage. Idiopathic simply means... We don't know what causes it, um, so it's kind of the medical term that gets associated with a condition when it, the condition is not really very well understood. Uh, pulmonary hemorrhage was quite clear. And these were children who, uh, in some cases, died from, from blood leaking out into their airways. So the question there was, is it possible that uh, stachybotrys or other types of uh, exposures uh, as a result of the dampness in these particular environments could have been responsible for that. That question was never really answered, um, and I'm not sure it could have been answered at the time from CDC's investigation, but there were allegations that perhaps this was associated with a particular type of mold. And, of course, that's what started the whole stachypotris scare and the whole black mold scare uh, none of which really made sense from a scientific perspective. So, I mean, there's plenty of black molds that are not stachybotrys, and, uh, and stachybotrys is only present in a percentage of uh, water intrusion cases. Uh, because of the ecology of the, of the organism, it tend, they tend to be those where they're very, very long-term and they're very, very wet. So typical uh, wetting, say, of gypsum wallboard, you're going to get Aspergillus and Penicillium growing, and only if the material stays saturated for really extended periods do you see tertiary colonizers like Stachybotrys appearing. So, in a way, it distracted everyone from the fact that moldy building materials that didn't involve Stachybotrys were therefore what of no concern. And of course, that really wasn't the case. So the focus on stacky bodges, while it mobilized and, and got people interested in the issue uh, is, is generally, from a scientific perspective, not the main issue. Uh, it's a distraction from the main issue, which is the moisture in buildings. And, and even in the absence of mold or, or visible mold or identifiable mold, the moisture in the buildings is still an issue.
1: Let me get one more. I, we've got to go to our roundup in a moment. I know we're a little behind. I don't. Did you have another? Uh, I apologize for not asking earlier. Do you have another appointment you have to go to, or can you stick with us for another five minutes?
0: My appointment is to make a good strong cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we could. Uh, That's my only appointment coming up. All right. Great.
1: Well, then uh, let me move to another chapter. There's two others I saw in here that. You were part, uh, part of the actual writing of these chapters, I assume. One was on the, uh, the role of, I guess, the industrial hygienist and others, or the accountability of industrial hygienists, uh, constituencies, and co-investigators. I just wonder if you could make, uh, give our, our listeners a, an overview of your thoughts on, on the importance of that chapter, and then I want to definitely hit on the uh, judging of the effectiveness of remediation.
0: Well, I think one of the first things I learned when I did indoor air quality investigations, and they were of a broad nature, um, I did work in indoor air quality other than just mold-related work. Um, One of the things that always struck me was was it wasn't so much what you did in the investigation, it was how you did it that often determined whether there would be a successful outcome and at the time most of the investigations i was doing were prompted by some type of complaint and were typically in commercial uh types of of occupancies office buildings or the like sometimes big tall skyscrapers sometimes two story or one story buildings but they were typically office environments and it became really clear that uh that beginning that type of an intervention it was a loaded emotional situation. Uh, typically, you had employees who were sick and complaining. Uh, maybe you had a union or other type of worker group that was involved. Uh, you had management. Maybe you had health care people from the community. Uh, and how that investigation was conducted became one of the main criteria and whether there was some successful conclusion. And uh, the AIHA did a very good job when they sponsored the publication by a man named Peter Sandman. I don't know if you uh, have featured any of his work on your program, but if you haven't, you ought to. Uh, risk equals hazard plus outrage was his basic thesis, and he published some really entertaining small books. Not really books, they're almost like monographs or something. There's something you could sit down and read in an hour or two and get the whole basic approach that he was discussing. And one of the things I did when I was in Seattle was I spent a lot of time trying to share the message that he was bringing across, uh, because I found that if you understood his perspective, that you were much more likely to have a successful conclusion to any type of an indoor air quality investigation.
1: Uh, we appreciate the tip on that. We, uh, Cliff and I were both writing it down. We have not had uh, any discussion on that. And it uh, was the name Sandman again? St. Peter Sandman. Peter Sandman. We will definitely do that. And it was risk, equal hazard, plus outrage, I believe.
0: Yeah, that, that's his basic premise. So it was really that if you didn't understand the social context of how people were addressing the issue, uh, that really you were missing the point entirely and if you attempted to simply do a technical solution without taking into consideration, all of these other factors going on, that you're almost bound to fail. Uh, and uh, AIHA picked up on his, his... He was a risk scientist who was, who was working in the field uh, in the 80s and 90s. AIHA picked up on that and published one of his books. And it's not an expensive publication, but it's a great way to understand um, his basic approach. And he's presented numerous, numerous seminars, uh, both with AIHA and from other organizations. And I think anyone who does indoor air quality investigations would benefit greatly by grabbing a copy of his book or searching it up on the web, because he does have a website that has a lot of these ideas uh, publicized.
1: Great. We uh, I appreciate that. We'll, we'll definitely follow up on that. I also like the, I always like to tell people about the in the EPA, uh, uh, what's it called, the uh, I-Beam program, it came from the Indoor Air Quality book back in the 90s. They have a section called uh, Perceptions of Risk, which I always found very interesting and try to get people to review from time to time because it, it helps you to understand how the individual is looking at their particular situation so this sounds like something very similar. The last chapter, I I saw that you were a co-author on and, and were a part of was the, of course, you were part of the whole book as far as the editing goes, but and I'm sure organ is organizing it, and it was a huge task, and I, I applaud the effort here. But it was the chapter 16 select, no, I'm sorry, it was the one on um, how do you know when your project is finished? I'm trying to find the right chapter name for it. Do you recall off the top of your head? Judging the effectiveness of remediation, that's it. Can you give us some comments on – we've talked about it a little bit in the past. It was a fundamental shift in some ways away from some of the strategies that people had been using up to that time. There was a, a section on actually doing a, a dust sample and, and essentially weighing that dust sample. And I know it was a little controversial when it first came out, but I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on that chapter in general.
0: Well, that's a that's a good point. I'm I'm glad you bring it up because basically, uh, when you're doing any type of a mold remediation, the work you're doing is generally driven by the fact that there's some type of a particulate that could be present that could have a health implication. And in the case of mold, you know, we talk about fragments versus whole spores versus this versus that, but but all of those things are particulate in nature. And if you're doing a cleaning that involves, say, wet wiping or HEPA-type vacuuming, you're after particulate. So the idea was in that chapter, and the idea in terms of uh, looking at the deposited dust, was that if you've successfully managed the remediation, there's not going to be a whole lot of total dust left uh, because you're trying to clean off all that dust. So that... Perspective of uh, evaluating it was really based upon looking at the total dust remaining and saying that that it's not possible to selectively clean the mold spores or mold particulate off. Uh, so why not just say the task here is to clean, and we'll simply look at how effectively the total dust is removed, and then that gets away from the whole issues of when you do any type of sampling for mold, it's extremely difficult to uh, quantitate exactly what you're finding. Any type of uh, culture-based sampling is being limited by the fact that the particulate has to be intact, whole spores capable of germinating, there has to be a hospitable medium that they're growing on. All of these complications are eliminated in that case, and you're simply saying to the contractor, your job is to clean, clean, and we're going to evaluate you on how much of the dirt you remove. If you leave dirt, it will be considered ineffective, and you'll have to go back and redo it. If you get all the dirt, then that's going to be good. And that reduces the uncertainty to the contractor. They're not looking at these, which to them might be inexplicable and complex sampling results having to do with which organisms are present. They're simply hired to do a job. The uncertainty is less the price to the building owner is going to be less because of that, and it's a much more level playing field for everyone. That was the concept behind that. Uh, Dr. Miller, who you had mentioned as a uh, co-editor of the publication, was a strong advocate of that particular perspective, and I thought that it made a tremendous amount of sense, and I was really uh, I, I thought it was important that we include that in the book and that it become incorporated into practice for all parties.
1: And do you, I'm curious, do you have uh, some insight for us on where that, where the choice of that method came from? Did did you just know from industrial hygiene in general that, you know, dust sampling was common? I know there's a NADCA, National Air Duct Cleaners Association Standard, where they have a, uh, a NADCA vacuum test, and then they have the, uh, I think it's the, I can't remember. It's the third level where they actually do a 100 milligram or 100 centimeter squared um, dust sample, essentially with uh, an MCE filter in there. Or there's another one. Oh, the old asbestos. Uh, There was an asbestos. I don't. I think it was a uh, protocol in one of the guidance documents for sampling inside of either ductwork or on surfaces for asbestos structures. Did did it come from that, or was it just something you guys came up with uh, on your own? Nope, oh, and we lost, we lost our guest. So hopefully he will call back. And it happens, hey, things happen. Unfortunately, uh, we lost Brad Prezant, but we had a great interview. We we're just getting ready to go to our roundup. Why don't we just go to the roundup and see if he calls back in? If not, we'll talk to Doctor Wow and we'll say goodbye. I think he's back. Oh wait, he's back. Move okay, we right. stop mine, that. Hit him up, raw, That's all right. Go ahead. <laughs> All right, we're back for the roundup. We lost our guest for a moment, but it looks like he's back. And you know, this day wouldn't be complete without dropping a couple calls after the morning we had. Val, <laughs> but uh, Brad, do we have you back on the line?
0: I'm back here now. Uh, yep.
1: Sorry, I don't know what happened. We're just having a rough day today. But I did you hear my question at all, or should I repeat it?
0: Would you kindly repeat
1: it? Sure. I was just curious. Did did the idea for Uh, taking a dust sample and the method that was in there for taking a dust sample did that come from another source Um, maybe some industrial hygiene sampling maybe some i know there's an asbestos sampling protocol out there for settled dust and there's a nadca national air duct cleaners association has within their standard for post remediation clearance whatever they call it uh, a, a little dust sample in there did it come from one of those or was it something that just you guys decided was uh, the right way to go?
0: I mean, I think historically there had been various types of dust sampling techniques that had been developed both in the hygiene community. And what was appealing about that technique was that NADCA, uh, the duct cleaners, already had a uh, protocol using that type of an approach, and they had been able to demonstrate because that was a industry-generated uh, type of a standard or a protocol, they had demonstrated that they were comfortable cleaning to that level. So I think the, the number was chosen on the basis that it was a number that was achievable in practice and that had been derived by uh, the cleaners themselves as something that could be done.
1: I'm glad so I that's, asked.
0: <laughs> that's kind of how it was developed, as I understand it from Dr. Miller.
1: Great. I'm glad I asked because I didn't get a chance to ask him when he was on the show. Listen, we we are going into our roundup here. That was kind of my first question. Maybe I'll get one more. What we do is go around. Uh, We bring our doctor, Dr. Wow, in to have any final comments. Cliff and I do a final question. Cliff, do you want to do your final question?
2: I I, I do. I I do. Do you think that ergonomics is going to have uh, a more important role in the future? Do you think it will be more emerging?
0: I think that as we learn more about all the different ways that human beings behave and are influenced, that looking at any particular environment, that you have to consider all of the factors involved. So the physical environment, uh, the ergonomics environment, uh, the chemical environment, and increasingly the psychological environment that's present in the workplace all of those things are going to have an impact on any type of health expression. So that if you're interested in in one of those, you kind of by necessity have to be interested in all of them uh, because you can't really look at each one in isolation. You know, they're all impacting on the person. The person is a complex being taking in all this stuff. And the more you understand about these other factors, or at least are aware of them, the more you can see the whole picture.
1: You know, I'm I'm curious. While we're kind of talking about things we haven't discussed much, uh, what would you say would be like an emerging issue or or something that we're maybe not paying enough attention to, other than ergonomics, based on your research and/or your experience in the field?
0: Well, I would say that that in particular with the green building um, movement that's occurred you know, in the last decade where buildings are built to read standards and and the like, that the focus on indoor air quality and a comfortable environment has been really looking at things that have easy-to-measure outcomes. So sometimes the things that are chosen are chosen simply because they're easy to measure, not because they're the most important factors. So, for example, the leads work, because of the people who were initially involved in this and that, originally developed looking at volatile organic chemical or VOC emissions from furniture, furnishings, building materials, and the like. But as somebody who's done air quality investigations for many years, uh, yes, you certainly can have problems, especially in new buildings from VOC emissions, but those things generally come down Uh, rather quickly in the lifetime of a building. So after six months or a year, generally those issues are going to be
2: minimized.
0: But uh, various types of particulate exposures indoors are the types of things that begin at the construction phase with any type of residual particulate that's left. And then all of the activities that are going on in the building are going to be generating a lot of those things. People are bringing in particulate from out of doors. So basically there was what I think an overemphasis on the vapor portion or the gas portion of the exposure and an underemphasis on the particulate exposure. Uh, And, of course, in the case of of mold, that's probably a portion of what the exposure is all about from what we know. So I think that overall I would say that uh, what I'm hoping occurs now, especially in the green building world, is an awareness that in order to manage the indoor air quality environment, one has to be much broader in looking at those exposures and look at the various types of situations and design factors that lead to particular exposures, as well, and if not more importantly, than those involving uh, exposures to off-gassing components of building materials and furnishings.
1: That's interesting. That's a great comment. I'm glad you glad you brought that up and before i i want to bring dr wow in who have another comment or or two but um you know you've done research over the years i didn't again we didn't get to connect as much as i would like i didn't get to look at some of the research you've done over the years and i wanted to give you a chance uh, while we have a lot of practitioners listening what prior research that you have done or been a part of would would you like to see Them know more about or be more widely distributed within the indoor environmental quality profession.
0: Well, that's a that's a tough question to answer. Um, Most of the work I did really uh, over the years was consulting, Um, and one of the things that I felt was really important when I was doing that work was to increase the overall knowledge level of all of the people who were doing that type of work in the area that I was working, which was Seattle. So um, one of the things that I did was give numerous presentations on the ideas and uh, developing science uh, at various conferences. Prevent also sponsored uh, a number of speakers who came to Seattle and gave talks you know, either for the local section of the AIHA or in some cases we sponsored the toxic pre Uh And there were researchers from all over the world who had an important message to share. So I think uh, probably one of the most important things that all of us can do, especially those of us who are tapped into those networks, is to try and give people who have a contribution to make an opportunity for their ideas to be further dispersed. Um, And of course, that was the logic behind the Green Book as well, was to put all that stuff in one place and see that it went to a wider audience than just the uh, AIHA membership, you know, that it was able to be dispersed to cleaning and restoration people, to consultants who did not have the background that some of us did either at the university and government uh, as consultants, you know, people who are just beginning, who wanted to upgrade their skills. So I think that would be, I think, the most important thing is that for people who have the opportunity to support continuing education through whatever various societies or indoor air quality organizations that are out there, let that continue so that we can all bring our practice level up a notch.
1: And we appreciate you helping us do the same here today. And uh, before we go, let's bring Dr. Wow in and see if he has a closing comment. Hello, Dieter. Do we still have you? Sure. (laughs) Great, great. Any final uh, thoughts or comments?
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. What we were talking about is really nothing new. I'm not saying we have to reinvent the wheel. But the Romans, 2,000 years or so ago, <clears throat> had a saying, in and I remember that from my Latin <laughs> <laughs> uh, lesson in Germany, uh, in, corpore sane in a healthy body is a healthy mind. And Brad said that also, there are so many things that we have to take care of uh, to make sure that the body is healthy be it particulate matter or gases or VOCs. We mentioned before the volatile organic compounds, heaven knows what they are, and there are millions of them around all over the place. But I think, and and, and Brad said that also, we have to look at a couple of other things than just taking a five-minute sample and say this is it. And, you know, ergonomics comes uh, uh, in it, and I think part of ergonomics is the lighting uh, uh, aspect, not only how you are sitting, how you are looking at the screen of a computer. Everybody has a computer. I'm looking at one right now, and I'm sure Brad is, and I know Joe So there are a ton of things which, which impact our modern life that yeah, nobody really knew about it, But we have to pay attention to them. And the other thing with particulate, Joe knows I spent my whole professional life really with particulate and particulate matter and how to measure it. It's a little bit more difficult than measuring just a a vapor. Uh, You take charcoal tube and you desorb it and you know what you've got. With particulate matter, there is something a lot of people don't know or realize a 10-micron particle, and, or micrometer, I should say, and a 10-micrometer particle are not necessarily the same unless they have the exact same shape and what? And the exact same density. There is, some, there is a concept, a very important concept, uh, which is called the aerodynamic equivalent uh, diameter, the AED, which determines how it is inhaled and where it is deposited in the lung. And is that important? I do think so. And it is very important. And Brad said that. I said, hey, we've got to look at that. And like I said, even with a $3,000 instrument today, yes, you get a ton of uh, uh, results, but there may be other uh, parameters that have to be measured before you can determine of what is happen- happening with that dust cloud, which we have Generated somehow, how it is inhaled and deposited in the human
1: lung. Dieter, as Ooh, always. That was a long sentence, <laughs> Well, thank you, as always. We always. Yeah, uh, the ter- Germans do that. Appreciate your thoughts here, Dieter. And that's one that uh, I know, I knew that particulate comment would get your interest and that you'd have something to follow up with on that. Brad, before we go, is there anything that you would like to add, something maybe we missed? I know, obviously, we couldn't do everything that uh, we would like to in an hour, but um, if you have any final comments, please let us know.
0: I have no additional comments. I think we covered a real broad range of topics, and hopefully it was of interest to all of your listeners.
1: All right. Well, that was it. Was a great interview. I enjoyed it, and um, believe me, there's some things you've said here that will get passed around to more practitioners around the country as we go through our uh, next couple of years here at IAQ Radio. And I go on the road doing a lot of training myself. So, thanks for joining us, and and thanks for getting up so early in the morning. And uh, hopefully, we'll meet somewhere down the road. Thank you. Okay. Let's uh, say. Thanks to our listeners, obviously, but uh, the Z-Man, you held down the fort. You were you were actually getting the computer started. He was, he was here. He was trying like heck to get us up and running. For someone well, who
2: can't multitask, it wasn't easy. <laughs> you, you did it. You did it. Uh, Val,
1: we made it. Yeah. It wasn't easy, but we made it. We had a rough trip in today, I'll tell you. It was amazing, but we made it. I also want to thank our, our guests for being so patient with us. We did have some major problems getting here today, but we made it. Uh, of course, I want to uh, thank our growing group of loyal listeners. Of course, Dr. Dietrich Waugh, our technical director. Please come back. Next week, we've got Stephen Caulfield. Uh, Steve is a uh, CIH and professional engineer, well-known building science professional and indoor air quality professional. I think our listeners will enjoy that show. We'll be back next week, next Friday at noon for the next episode of I.E.Q. Radio.
2: Has been
0: another IAQ radio production.
3: Call recording has been completed.